He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The statement Jesus made that is read for you from Luke 24 was after the resurrection of Jesus. And the statement he made is that it was necessary that the scriptures be fulfilled that were written by the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now that's the statement he made. And in, that, in making that statement, he is actually putting the spotlight upon himself where it should be. When we read the Old and the New Testament, we're reading about an individual who appeared in a historical context by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who fulfilled predictions made in the Old Testament of his coming. If we were to ask of any, any situation in the Bible, which one actually gives us the absolute undeniable proof that Jesus is the Son of God, it would be that statement that was just read, that it was necessary that the prophecies of the law, prophets, and the Psalms were fulfilled in him. Now, all through time, from the time that Jesus came until now, the story about Jesus has reverberated throughout the whole world. And we, we know the story. And the story tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the Bible re reveals to us. He's the only man who has made that statement or made that claim and he's the only man to whom it pertains that has ever appeared. He said, I am the Son of God. And because he said that, billions of individuals, even today, billions of individuals, 2.3 billion I believe, actually, according to a poll, believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Now that's impressive. When we talk about religion, we're not just talking about one individual when we talk about all religions. We're talking about religions that have grown up because people have superstitions about one thing or another. We're talking about religions that, that surround different systems, for instance. And they may have an individual or two in that system that gives some sort of impetus to the story. The difference with Jesus is, He is the story. Not just part of it. He is the story. Now if we took what we call Christianity, and it is the largest religious organization or religious belief in the world at this point. It's larger than the Muslim religion. It's larger than the Hindu religion and so forth. If we were to take all the different facets of what we call Christianity, 2.3 billion, I believe, in the world at the present time, we would know that there were a lot of different facets involved in this that talk, talk about different things and have different premises to them. But the one thing they all have in common, even though they have different organizations, different names and so forth, called Christianity, the one thing they have in common is that they all believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They all believe that. Now, because they believe that, now we're talking about one individual who garners all of that 
confidence and all of that faith and the one individual commands or dictates to millions upon millions, even billions of individuals and tells them what they should do in their lives and how they should behave. Now, how did he get to this point? That's, that's what we need to look at. Because people, by the millions, will willingly lay down their lives and abandon their old life and start a new life and will accept the fact that Jesus of Nazareth has the authority to tell them how to behave and what to do, how to live. And the power of the story is seen in its impact upon the world. Wherever the name of Jesus of Nazareth is preached, there is an improvement. People get better. People do better. People behave better. Whether it's in a village, whether it's in a hamlet, whether it's in a suburb, su suburb of a city, whether it's in a metropolitan area, whatever it may be, whenever the name of Jesus of Nazareth is introduced and people say, I believe He is the Son of God, society improves. It actually improves. Gets better. Now that cannot be said about any other religion. It cannot be said about any other individual that they are improving the world. But it, it, it is said about Jesus. The story of Jesus is so inspirational that believers have willingly laid down their physical lives as an testament to that belief. They've died because of this. Because they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And there's no other story on earth that can even mildly, in the least, compare with the story we read about Jesus on the pages of the Bible. Now I say the Bible because I'm saying there are 39 books in the Old Testament. And in the context of the Old Testament, there's one central figure that is there that looms over all the rest that is coming and in the New Testament, there's one central figure that He has come. And that's Jesus. Now, the foundation upon which Jesus has made His life, laid His life, and the foundation upon which we build our lives in relationship to Jesus is the fact that He came in fulfillment of Old Testament predictions. They prophesied. Now, if we were to name any one item in the Bible that actually beyond a shadow of a doubt proves that Jesus is the Son of God, it is this item. Not the miracles, not the resurrection, but this item. Predictions in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And of course, the resurrection falls within that purview too. But the point is, if I were to be asked the question, how can you know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God? The only way I have to demonstrate that, not by the miracles because I haven't seen one, not by the resurrection, even though I know that the resurrection has changed the world, His resurrection, and has demonstrated that He is the Son of God, but it is by the predictions or the prophecies that are contained in those 39 books of the Old Testament. When He came in fulfillment of those, He demonstrated to the world at one time and forever that He is alone the Son of God. And I can go back to those predictions and say, look, this talks about Jesus and he is the only man in history who has ever fulfilled predictions like that. The only one. And therefore, I have solid ground upon which to rest my feet on faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. That's where my feet, that's where my feet rest. Now, it is historically accurate to say that Jesus did what no other human being has ever done or ever will do. 
He fulfilled historical predictions. Now, I know there are a lot of people that believe that predictions can be made and have been made about the future, but none have ever been demonstrated or provable. None. But this one, this is the only one. When Jesus came, he fulfilled predictions made hundreds of years before he arrived of who he was and what he was going to do. Now, let's take a look, first of all, at the books that, that have the, what we call prophecy. And the, the word prophecy actually means to speak in front of. So we're not just talking about speaking on the behalf of God. We're talking about predictions about something that was coming historically that could not have been known by any human method, could not have been known prior to the time that it happened. So, for instance, if someone were to tell you that uh, an individual is going to be born in a certain year at a certain time, and it happened, and they told you that hundreds of years before it happened, then you would have a solid ground to place some confidence in the individual who made that prediction. That's what happened with Jesus. Predictions were made, so we can call them prophecy, but we want to make sure that we understand that it's talking about predicting the future. Talking about the future. And the ground of that prophetic fulfillment by Jesus stands beneath, beneath our feet, and it's solid. First, let, let's, let's, let's just uh, say this. That the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament that Jesus referred to when he said it is important that, 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 that all be fulfilled, it was written in the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, those three collections of books. Those three collections of books are several hundred years old by the time Jesus came to this earth. Now we know that because Ptolemy II of Philadelphus, that's his name, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, he was a ruler in the Macedon Empire, which was Egypt, northern Egypt. And his father was a general under Alexander the Great's father, which is Philip of Macedon. And he lived, we know this historically, he lived in the third century before Jesus was born. He lived... And, uh, well, he was born in 326, I believe, B.C., before Jesus. And then he died 216 or 217, something like that. I can't recall the dates exactly. But during his time, he gathered 72 of the Jewish scribes or rabbis that were well-versed in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. And he had them translate the Hebrew Scriptures, the 39 books we have in our Bible, Old Testament, had them translate them into the Greek language. So we know those 39 books existed before, in a Hebrew form, before the 3rd century B.C. 200 years before Jesus appeared, these books were translated into the Greek, and we have copies of them that were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Entire copies of the entire Old Testament in the Greek. They were translated by these 72 Jewish scholars. So we know at least that the statements made about Jesus that he said he fulfilled were at least 200 years old or older. Basically, in all likelihood... There's something like 1,200 years old when the books are first written in the Old Testament. But we know at least, we know this, that at least they were 200 years old. If a, if a prediction is made 50 years ago or 100 years ago, it would overwhelm us if it came to pass. Here it was, that here were these books talking about Jesus, talking about Him coming, that were at least... Two to three hundred years old that we can prove historically. We can demonstrate that. Now, when Jesus came to this earth, he came claiming and making the statement that he was going to fulfill those prophetic statements. 
the law, the prophets, and the Psalms in those three places. Now, what I'm going to do is take you through some of those statements that were made and show you that Jesus fulfilled them and demonstrated it for you so that in your study of the Old Testament and the New, and in your application in your life, you will at least be able to have the confidence that you have the demonstration of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. A demonstrable set of evidences that gives you the ability to say without equivocation before unbelievers and believers alike that Jesus did something no one else on this earth could ever do and he fulfilled prophecy. Now, the first explanation that has been offered by unbelievers that he fulfilled these prophecies was that there was a planned conspiracy among his followers to manipulate the facts and the, and the uh, statements so that it would immaculately apply to various aspects of the life of Jesus. So that what, he's, what they're saying is, there was a company of people who got together and said, okay, let's manufacture the application that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. Let's see if we can, we can uh, massage the facts around and make them fit Jesus. Make them fit. That's one, one uh, definition. And, and when you think about that, you have to think in these terms. Whoever did something like that, and as we'll, as we'll go through, you'll see that it would be a, a, extremely difficult to manufacture facts to fit the life of Jesus. Extremely difficult. But in order to do it, someone would have to be totally familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. And I want to tell you something. That's not easy. That's not easy to do. To be totally familiar. And they had to be totally familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures when there was no such thing as chapters and verses. Nothing like chapters and verses in the Old Testament until about the 15th or 16th century of our day. They didn't have chapters and verses. They just had long scrolls with all this writing and they didn't even have uh, letters. Consonants, they had their consonants, but they, they didn't have any vowels. So they had to make their vowel points and they didn't have any divisions among the letters. So when you read the Hebrew, you were reading from right to left and you're reading without any space between the words and they went back and forth called Bustrophodon, which was like a pl- uh, ox plows. So they, they had all these scriptures, and yet you were, we would say, well, okay, what they did was, they went back through and found in all these passages specific points that they could apply to one individual who appeared in the context of history that would fit all the parameters necessary to apply to Jesus as the Son of God. Now that's one, one premise. And the question in my mind would be, who would that be? Who could have made such a story? Who could have so designed it that they could capture the life of Jesus of Nazareth? He was an individual and he did appear. Matter of fact, other historical documents verify that, that Jesus of Nazareth did in fact, was in fact a person who appeared in the context of history. But who could have manipulated the Old Testament passages to fit the life of this young man from Galilee? That's the question. Who could have done that? I know right away it would have to be a genius. Not just one genius, it would have to be a lot of geniuses. They would have to be able to get together and, and have absorbed themselves, totally immerse themselves in the Old Testament Scriptures and then found somebody in their society, who would fit the parameters of the passages, the predictions. That's what they'd have to do. Now you think about that. You think about trying to fit one person in a certain context of history to fit all the prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, I want to say something to you very quickly. 
That is that there's, there's over 200 passages in the New Testament that specifically talk about the Christ, the coming Christ, that Jesus purportedly fulfilled. Over 200 of them. Now, I'm not going to tell you odds. I'm not going to go into odds with you and tell you what, what the odds would be of finding this or finding that or fitting this or fitting that into his life because that, that kind of gets us uh, far afield of what we're, what we're talking about. But there have been those who have run the odds on this thing and they've made some preposterous statements about how wild the odds would be. But I, I think just for the common individual like myself and yourself, that, that we, we are more comfortable with just looking at the facts and saying, okay, does it seem rational and reasonable that this could have happened without some kind of manipulation? Well, then we have to think, if it was manipulated, who did it? It would have to be someone who's smart enough to do it. And it would have to be someone who's Jewish to do it because they would be absorbed in the Old Testament scriptures. It would have to be someone who knew the lay of the land, someone who was completely absorbed with the society, who could actually step up and with a cadre of individuals put the program together. If you're thinking of 12 apostles, you're thinking of the wrong group of people because they were fishermen and tax collectors and just common ordinary folks. Well, would it have been one of the ruling elite of the Jewish society? It almost would have to have been. And when we reach that conclusion, then we've got other problems. And the other problem is, the ruling elite of Judaism in the times of Jesus was condemned by Jesus because they were not ruling correctly. So, if it was them, they were condemning themselves if they were creating this image of Jesus. Well, let's, let's go on though. The second explanation is that Jesus actually fulfilled these prophecies. And I actually believe that that's the simplest explanation and yet it's the most complex, most complicated. How could that have happened? Again, there's over 200 texts in the New Testament that apply from the Old Testament but some of them are rather vague, so I don't want to go into those. Let's, let's, just, let's just start some things and say, okay, how could this have happened? How could it have happened that this young man from Judea have come along and fulfilled prophetic utterances that were made hundreds of years before he, before he appeared? How could that have happened? Happenstance? Just accidentally? Or was it manipulated? What went on? The first thing we know is that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that the text says that there was a prophet like Moses that was going to appear. Now, Deuteronomy was in all likelihood one of the oldest books written of the Old Testament. One of the oldest books. So it may be hoary with age. It may be 1,200 years before Jesus but in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up unto you a prophet from the midst of you, of you, of your brethren, like unto me. Him will you hearken. Now, that prophecy was applied to Jesus of Nazareth, this young man from Galilee. Now, Jesus, when he started his public speaking and public appearance, was 30 years old. And he was here for three and a half years basically 42 months. The Bible calls it time, times, a half a time. Three and a half years. He was here about three and a half years publicly. Okay. Now, the writers of the New Testament, beginning in the book of Acts through Revelation, point back to this and say that was Jesus. He was the prophet. He was the one. So, so they're saying at this point, that Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, who, who claims to be the Son of God, is the one spoken of in Deuteronomy 18 at verse 15. Now for you to understand this clearly, let me just say this, that the Jewish nation is still waiting for this prophet to appear. 
still waiting for him to appear. They believe he's coming. Some have suggested that he came at a certain time already, but that, that, that has generally been set aside. Others have said, well, the prophet is not actually an individual. It's a nation. It's a nation. So a nation's going to appear. So they're having, they're having all sorts of difficulty with this. And yet Jesus said, I came and I am that prophet. And so does his apostle. His apostle said, he's that prophet. So 1,200 years before he came, at least 200 years before he came, there was a, there was a statement made that the prophet was going to show up. Okay. The second statement made that we need to look at is that he was going to be a direct descendant of Abraham. Genealogical records. Okay. We have two genealogical records of Jesus. One is found in Matthew chapter 1 and one is found in Luke chapter 3. One takes us back to Abraham. The other takes us back to Adam. But both both of the genealogical records show that he was actually a Descendant of Abraham. Now, that's, that's uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord said unto Abram, Abram get, get you out of your country and from your kindred, from your father's house unto a land that I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless you, and curse them that curses you, and in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. And that's applied specifically to Jesus, in his time, and they they asked him several times whether or not he was where he was from and who his father was, because they said they were of Abraham. And Jesus said, "Before Abraham, I was. I was already here before he came along." But he came in the descendancy of Abraham. Galatians three at verse eight is the application made by the New Testament writers. So two things: a prophet was coming. Secondly, that he would be of the descendancy of Abraham. And the third was that he was going to be in the lineage of King David. Psalms 132 verse 11 says, The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will, not turn, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of your body will I set upon your throne. <coughs> Excuse me. Now that statement is made time and again in the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 2 at verse 30, the apostle Peter makes this application to Jesus. He is the seed of David. He is the prince of Israel. He is the one that was coming to be the king of all nations. So we have three statements made concerning this individual that have to be somehow applied to someone at that time or in our time even if we're going to try to make the prophecy fit anybody else. First of all, he was going to be a prophet. Secondly, he was coming of the lineage of Abraham. And then he was coming of the lineage of David, the king. And all of that is demonstrated in Matthew 1 and in Luke chapter 3. So, now, how could the people in his day somehow pick out an individual that could fill those particular prophecies? So if someone's trying to find someone to manufacture this prophecy about, the prediction about, they would have to find someone who fit the lineage that's, that's stated in the Old Testament. Okay, that's one, one situation. Now then, let's, let's go further. They would have to find that individual in a certain parameter of time. It had to happen within a narrow window of time. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45... Daniel said, In the days of these kings shall a kingdom shall, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now, we could read the whole text, but the whole text is talking about the fact that God is going to set that kingdom at a certain time, and He's going to make sure that it is manned by one He's going to appoint. That would be the Christ, the, the descendant of David. Now, in this, in this framework of Daniel chapter 2, there are two statements made about historical events that are going to take place and when the, when the one who is, talk, is talked about here, the one who will set up the kingdom, will come, he will come in the framework of the fourth kingdom. And 
And Daniel is actually setting forth the interpretation of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had where he saw four different beasts and four different images. And those images were in Daniel chapter 7 were defined this way specifically, that the first image was that of the, of the Chaldeans, which, which the Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Chaldean Empire. The next empire that was mentioned or that was de- defined and described was the Medo-Persian Empire. And the, after that was the Grecian Empire. And then the last, last was the Roman Empire. And everyone, every scholar who's ever looked at these texts will tell you that these were the four, and actually they're named in Daniel chapter 7, these are the four empires. And it was in the time of the fulfillment of the fourth empire, which was the Roman Empire, that God would set up the kingdom and he would set up his king. One like unto the Son of Man was going to come, according to Daniel chapter, chapter 7. So, the last, the last days are mentioned in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. It shall come to pass in the last days that this was going to happen. And as a matter of fact, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 talks about the fullness of time. So what we're saying is that there was a specific window of time when this was going to take place. That someone was going to come, the prophet, he was going to come. He was of the lineage of Abraham, the lineage of David, and he was going to come during the time of the Roman Empire, and he would set up a kingdom which would never be destroyed. So now, whoever's if there's somebody trying to put this all together and say, look, and basically what I'm saying is that no one can deny successfully that these prophecies are there. What people can deny is that Jesus fulfilled them. That's the denial. Not that they were there, because they've they've always been there. But whether or not Jesus of Nazareth actually came and personally fulfilled these prophecies. So, Peter said that this is he that was spoken of. And and these are the days that were spoken of. The last days. He made that statement for Jesus in in, uh, the book of Acts chapter 2 and at verse 17. So, we've got it it to this point, and that is that we have the proper time frame. Now, he was said to have been born in a certain city. So, we're getting narrower and narrower in terms of making sure that we can fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. A prophet is coming. A king is coming. He's coming during the days of the Roman Empire. And he's coming from a specific town. So now, if somebody's manipulating these events, they're going to have to find someone that was born in the city of Jerusalem that would fit all the other characteristics, you see. Okay. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the nations, thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he forth unto me that shall be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Out of Bethlehem. Now, when Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem, it was not by design of his parents. His parents, Joseph and Mary, were not from Bethlehem. But they had gone to Bethlehem in order to enroll in a taxation period of the Roman government. And when they were there is when Jesus was born. Then wise men from the east came and said, and asked Herod and the different uh, rulers in Israel, they said, where is he that is Christ? Where is he supposed to be born? And so Herod got everybody together and said, let's find out where he's supposed to be born. Where is this prophet going to be born? And they all came to the conclusion that it was going to be at Bethlehem. So now we, we have to take this prophet that is mentioned in the Old Testament and specifically get him somehow into the city of into Bethlehem and have him come into this world there. Matthew 2, verse 3 through 6, of course, gives this indication of what took place in that conversation between the Magi and the uh, rulers in Israel when they came to the conclusion that the one who was going to rule in Israel would come from Bethlehem. So now we're, we're starting to, to accumulate some facts 
and we're starting to narrow this prediction down and, and saying things like, well, we know who he has to be, what his family has to be. We know when he has to arrive. And now then we know where he has to be. And in addition to this, we find out later that he had to leave there, go into Egypt and come back. Now that's, that's getting complicated, isn't it? Hosea chapter 11 at verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And Matthew chapter 2 at verse 15 says, that's a direct fulfillment of that prophecy. So not only is he born in Bethlehem, but he has to leave Bethlehem and go to Egypt and then come back out of Egypt. Now that would get a little complicated, wouldn't it? For someone that's trying to put the story together and try to focus it on one individual and manipulate the events, it becomes, you know, it's almost at this point, it's already overwhelmingly impossible to do, basically, in my mind. Now let's add to that something else. The Old Testament says that there was going to be a prophet that would precede him that would be like Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Remember Elijah? He's the guy that wore the leather coat. He was kind of a rough fellow. Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 5, it says, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. We know who that was. That was John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. That was John the Baptist. Now how on earth, and we know that he came. And historically, we have evidence that John the Baptist came. Other people wrote about him at the end of the first century. John the Baptist appeared. We know that he appeared. How could we manipulate things so that if we're going to make this story up, if it's a made-up story, it's a made-up tale, how do we make it up that this man called John the Baptist who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, how could we get him in the picture as well? Well, of course, we're having difficulty at this point making the story work. Now, let's, let's go a little further. And I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm resisting the, the impulse to go back to the Old Testament and pick out all the different prophecies that may or may not have had a literal, exact fulfillment in Jesus. Because sometimes when we do that, we stretch the credibility of the story. And we actually strain the imagination of a person who's listening. So, let's just stick with those solid statements made by the prophets in the Old Testament that we know was, were fulfilled specifically by Jesus in a certain way. If we're going to have a prophet that appears in the last days, during the time of the Roman government, who's going to establish the kingdom of God, according to Daniel, then what sort of temperament should this man have? If you are a Jewish coterie of individuals who are manufacturing a story to show that this is the king David, the king of Israel, the descendant of Abraham and David, then we want to have a certain type of an individual who would come and fulfill those predictions. What type would it be? Obviously, it's going to be someone who's going to demand the attention of the world. He's going to have a commanding presence. He's going to have a personality that will draw people to him because of who he is. He's going to be authoritative. He's going to be a magnificent creature, as it were. He's going to be someone who will actually draw the masses behind him. And yet, Isaiah 42, verse 1 through 4, describes him this way. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He's going to rule 
but he shall not cry. He won't he won't make loud noises. He won't he won't be making big speeches, apparently. He won't he won't cry. He won't lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. He would have a non-intimidating mien. He would not be overpowering in his presence. Now that's exactly the opposite of what anybody, and I, I challenge anyone to deny this. The mean or the temperament of Jesus was actually the exact opposite of what people would have expected or anticipated in the ruler of the world. And yet Matthew chapter 12, verse 18 through 20 applies this text specifically to Jesus. He's not going to break a bruised reed or put out smoking flax. He would be a humble and a lowly servant king. Zechariah 9 at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Show, O daughter of Jerusalem, how your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. That's exactly how Jesus came into Jerusalem. Who would have come up with that concept? That the king of all the world, the creator of the universe, the prophet of old, would come into the city of God, Jerusalem, in that lowly manner. Somebody had to have an imagination. They would not have concocted that on their own. The Old Testament sets forth that prediction and Jesus fulfilled it. Now, the kicker here is this, that when he came, he was going to be rejected by his own people. Now, somebody's going to make a story about a ruler coming to Israel that's going to conquer the world. He's going to be the king of the kingdom of heaven that will encompass the whole world. What sort of a king is he going to be? And who will promote him? Well, obviously, if these people are making the story up, they're going to make up a story to their advantage. Aren't they? If you're, going to, if you're going to promote someone for the President of the United States of America, you want to make sure that, that he, he's on your side, right? That he'll do, he'll do things that you want him to do. And he'll, he'll, be, he'll be for all the people, but basically, he's your, he's your guy. So if these people who are promoting Jesus, the ones who know the Old Testament, if they're promoting Him... The text says in Isaiah 53 that those same people that are supposed to be promoting him would reject him. Now how can, how can that be that he would be rejected? The king coming, fulfilling prophecy, and yet the people that should have been promoting him were going to reject him. Now that's a prophecy. That's a prediction. Isn't that something? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 through 4 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him, his own people. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. John 19 and verse 14 is the fulfillment of that. They said, when Pilate said, uh, what do you want to do with Jesus? And they said, get rid of him. Crucify him. And Pilate washed his hands. Remember, he said, I'm not going to have anything to do with this just man. My wife had a dream about him last night. I can't find anything wrong in him. And they said, his blood be upon our heads and the heads of our children. The very people... Old Testament predictions and so forth. The very people that should have been promoting the prophet like Moses, the Son of God, rejected him. These are predictions that, that no one could have thought of 
earlier and anticipated. He would be betrayed to death by his own friend. Now we're getting specific. Again, we're getting specific. He would be betrayed by someone that was close to him. Psalms 41 verse 9 says, Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You know who that was? Judas Iscariot. Now how would anybody ever figure something like that out from the Old Testament Scriptures? That the, that the prophet of God was going to come and his own people were going to kick him out, reject him, and his own familiar friend was going to lift up his heel against him and betray him. Now that, that's something that, uh, that it, it stretches the imagination too far and the, the intelligence too far to think that this could have been something that was manipulated particularly by people who were promoting him. And then in Zechariah 11, verse 12, he says, I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed my price, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I was priced out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Matthew 26, verse 9 and 10. That's what Jesus was betrayed for. 30 pieces of silver. And when they cast the 30, 30 pieces of silver out, they took the money and bought the potter's field. Now that's from Zechariah, and yet Jesus fulfilled it. And then, in Psalms 22, verse 16 through 18, dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. Psalms 22. You know, that was written at least, if we go by Bible chronology, 800 years before Jesus or 700. He says, I, I, that I may count all of my bones. They took, they look and stare upon me. So Jesus, while he's on the cross, could have actually counted his ribs. They parked my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Isn't that interesting? Specific statements about the death of Jesus. Now we're getting narrower and narrower about prophecy, aren't we? Predictions. We, we started out saying, well, it's going to be a prophet. He's going to have a good genealogy. Then we said, we know where he's, what, when, when he's coming. He's going to come during the time of the Roman Empire. And we know, as, as a matter of fact, where he was going to be born in Bethlehem. We also knew that he was going to take a trip up to Egypt and come back. And we know that he was going to be, as an individual, he was going to be preceded by a fellow like Elijah, the prophet. So you see, we're getting more and more complicated. Who, my friend, and I'm not, I'm not making a detailed argument for you for it. I'm just appealing to your reasonableness. Who on earth could have developed such a story about Jesus. Who could have developed that and put it all together if he were not in fact a true individual fulfilling these prophets by his life, these predictions. Isaiah 53 verse 7 continues this way. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment, who shall declare his generation? He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. You know where Jesus died? Between two thieves. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. You know who buried him? A rich man from Arimathea. This says because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. These are fulfilled in the text in Luke 22, verse 33, and verse 50 through 53. What I'm saying to you is this that reasonably, intellectually, we do not have a reasonable and intellectual explanation.
for the fulfillment of all these prophecies by Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, the, the, uh, the man of Nazareth, all of the documents were closed by the end of the first century. It was all written down. We have all that information there. It was never challenged that he lived. It was never challenged that he did all these things. What has been challenged is that he fulfilled these texts and that the challenge has been that somebody made the story up and made him fit all the pieces and parts. That's, that's what's been said. And I'm, I'm appealing to you, my friends, not on the basis of, of uh, odds and not on the basis of how these things could or could not have happened specifically, but I'm appealing you, to you on the basis of solid common sense. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And he did, in fact, fulfill these prophecies. And because of that, I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that he rose from the dead. Because the prophecy said he was going to. He's going to rise from the dead. I believe he now lives and he now reigns. And I believe I can give my life to him. And if you believe that, if you believe the prophecies, and that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, fulfilled those prophecies, then you believe he is the Son of God. And you will, along with billions of other people, Accept that fact. Recognize that He can make your life better than anybody can ever make it. And in addition to that, after you have the best life you could ever enjoy on this earth because you followed this man in all of his morals, all of his principles, all of his precepts, his example of life, if you do what He tells you to do on this earth, you're going to have a better life than you would have under any other circumstance. And in addition to that, it's not going to end. It's going to just get better. This is the promise that he has promised us. We're told by John, John, 1 John 2, 25. Even eternal life. He has promised. Can you imagine someone who can, in fact, hand me eternal life? That's Jesus, the Son of God. And the reason I believe in him is because he fulfilled these prophecies. He said he's going to, and he did. No other man has ever made that claim or could make that claim, but Jesus of Nazareth did, and I believe him. Don't you?